are back with episode eight, part two of Thinking Outside the Vault. I'm Zach Garver, and my co-host is Andrew Swinney. Jessica Webb, who you heard on part one, had to step out for another meeting. Just a reminder, our guest is Greg Wimpy, Casasa's chief client officer, and we're talking about deposit repricing and what community banks and credit unions can do to shore up their portfolios without taking a bath. You're listening to part two of that conversation. If you're just joining us, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to part one first. We'll be here waiting when you finish. So what are the... Um, What's the solution then? I mean, if, if traditional data sources aren't cutting it, then where do we suggest that people go to fill the gap? Yeah. So there are, um, there's a couple of options. Uh, obviously, you know, from from our standpoint, that's one of the things that you know, we as Casasa on the, on the client success side, we're actively feeding to our institutions is, is visibility to that information. But honestly, you know, we don't even have access to that online component. Um, there's really no good way uh, to know exactly what's happening from, you know, from online deposits um, uh, being gathered out of individual markets. Um, that said, we, we had a conversation yesterday, actually, with a, a third party vendor that claims to have um, actually claims to have visibility to that information. Um, so. Uh, that will be interesting, but that's the first time I've ever heard anybody say that. So I don't know how uh, <laughs> I don't know how credible it's going to be yet, um, but we'll vet it out. But you know, really, I think it's not so much it's not so much the factuality or the exact data that you need. It's just the awareness, right? I think you know the, the reason I pointed out that data is is you know I think people pulled those FDIC reports for years. That's how they became aware of what was going on in their market and when. A new name showed up. That was, you know, that was the awareness of that. You know, or a physical branch showed up. That's how they became aware of that new competition. And and neither of those things happen online, right? Marcus doesn't show up in your FDIC deposit market share summary. And you know, there is no Marcus branch or any of those other competitors. And so it's really just about um, making sure that these institutions are are either feeding it, feeding themselves. They're actively looking for that information, whether that's because they're they're going through the transaction records uh, for their current account holders to see, you know, to see what those ACHs are, what those transfers are. Um, are they growing? Are they shrinking? All that kind of information, as well as just, you know, understanding what's going on in the industry, whether you're you're consuming that yourself or you've partnered with somebody who's who's guiding you through that process. But one of those one of those things needs to happen. Um, you've got to either feed yourself or find somebody to feed you because otherwise you'll, you know, we as an industry will just get left in the dust. We've talked about pricing, um, mainly from a institution's perspective, uh, you know, about what makes financial sense and the reason to, to price wisely. Uh, I'm curious, do we have any data around how sensitive consumers are to price? How effective is that in attracting deposits and what is a big enough sort of change or uh, difference in the market? In order to be enticing, yeah, that's um, you know one of the things that is I think so uh, compelling about uh, Casasa is that you know we've been doing this for for fifteen years now, um, and you know thankfully we had the foresight that long ago to to start compiling all of that data, and if you think about you know the last fifteen years of 
of market rates. We've been in a rising, we've been now in two rising rates environments. We've been in a falling rate environment. We've been in a very stagnant rate environment. So yeah, there isn't, there really isn't a, uh, uh, you know, an overall economic uh, situation, rate situation that we, that we haven't seen. Um, and therefore we haven't been logging the data through. So if we look back to the last uh, last couple rising rate environments, um, what our data shows us is that uh, for there to be a significant move in consumers, you need it. You need to be priced at least seventy five, um, preferably a hundred basis points above the competitive rates in the market. And it's an important point about competitive rates. Um, because I've, I, uh, I've caught myself in a scenario and, and had conversations where I've said, Hey, you know, we need to be at 75 to hundred basis points higher. And somebody will look at it and say, well, yeah, but if I price it at 1%, I'm a hundred basis points higher than my free checking account. So I should be fine. Well, that's, that's not really the comparison point. The comparison point is what's my alternative for, for that deposit? Because if I'm trying to grow deposits, I'm not growing them, you know, on the average balance of free checking, which nationwide is about 1800 bucks right now. You know, we need to be talking about people who are bringing in significant amounts of deposits. And so those folks aren't coming in and dropping, you know, for the most part, dropping all of that money into uh, free checking or even a, you know, a savings account. Those are the ones that are looking at your, your you know, high rate money market, high rate savings or CDs. And so those are our comparison points. What are the, what are the highest rate alternatives uh, for deposit in your market, not even in your own institution? Um, I need to know what's going on in your market. So. If I'm having this conversation with an institution, I immediately look online and today I can get a savings account. I can open a savings account and be in the neighborhood of two, four to two, five without any stipulations, almost no you know, opening deposit requirements. Um, and so that becomes my baseline unless there's another competitor in the market that's, that's more aggressive. Um, and then we need to be looking at 75 to 100 basis points above that. And so what you'll see today you know, most of the institutions that are going out the door from Casasa are are launching in the three and a quarter to three and a half range. Um, and that's exactly why. So it sounds like, I mean, one aspect is it, it's, it seems like it's a little bit short sighted to consider your free checking as the competition for whatever your reward checking is going to be. And then it sounds like there's a little bit of a paradigm shift as well as in terms of thinking of a reward checking account as really competition against a CD, like it's a, a hybrid in terms of how it affects your balance sheet. It's, it's less so a DDA and, 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 or maybe that's the wrong way to say that, but it just seems like it has a different functionality than anybody's really paying attention to. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're definitely correct. I mean, the, you know, free checking is certainly not the, is certainly not the comparison point. Uh, for you know a price you know, the beginnings of a pricing strategy uh, when you're when you're launching a Casasa Cash or Casasa Saver program that's definitely we need to be looking at those other other alternatives for for high you know for those large deposits to come in um, but yeah I mean the the hybrid approach is exactly right I mean it's and it's you, know, you can you can look at the you know you look at the statistics and kind of some of the inside behaviors of of a Casasa Cash account or or, or even, you know, you look at an account holder, if we talk about somebody who has Casasa Cash and then has linked the saver account to it, you know, those types of consumers where, you know, we're free checking, like I said before, you're talking about an $1,800 average balance, you know, with, with cash and saver, 
for an institution that's really trying to be aggressive on their deposit base, that combination you're talking that consumer is typically bringing in you know twenty five to thirty five thousand dollars between the two products, um, between the checking account and the savings account as a combined deposit. And so, um, you know, just that alone, it's a checking account um, with a linked savings account, but really that core relationship is the checking account. But those are CD type deposits from an average balance standpoint, certainly not a, a checking type deposit. But at the same time, you do see debit card interchange that comes into play. You do see those kind of those checking behaviors that are there. And so it is a paradigm shift. I, that's a, I think that's a great point. Um, you can't you've got to you've got to treat it like it's a, a, a unique entity. You can't you can't treat them like checking accounts and you can't treat them like CDs. If you if you treat them like CDs and think you can set it for, you know, set that rate and forget it, regardless of what happens in the market, um, you're going to lose that account holder because it's a checking account and they can walk in and take that deposit with them. So you, you've got to be conscious of what's going on in the market. But um, but you also can't just, you know, blatantly you know think that you've just got the $1,800 consumer that's coming in the door. And you know, you've really got to be engaged in, in making sure that you're creating a great experience for them because they have a lot of alternatives. Uh, to go somewhere else. Cool. Um, so I guess, I don't know if this question will be relevant to make it, but if you were to be a banker right now or ahead of a bank, um, what would your deposit mix look like? How much would you put in CDs? How much would you try to reallocate over into reward checking, etc.? That is exactly what I was going to ask. I mean, a little bit differently, but I, I, I've heard Greg say, you know, that reward checking isn't necessarily, you know, you don't want to fund your whole deposit portfolio with reward checking. So th th that mix is that's yeah, I'd love to hear you talk about that. Yeah. Um, wow, that's a that's a great one. Um, you know, it's it's funny, I, <laughs> if I was running my own bank, and I didn't have to worry about examiners, I would go after I would have a huge chunk of my deposit base inside of uh, inside of Kasasa. And, and reward checking type products because I mean it's just there's so much flexibility and there's so much um, additional revenue from the non-interest income. I mean there's just it's run the right way. It is it is just an incredibly profitable program. Highly engaged consumers, lower attrition rates, you know all of those things. So that to me, I would do it. But you know, reality is. Um, even if I decided, you know, even if I had my own bank, I would still have to have an examiner coming in the door and that would just blow their minds. So, you know, I, I, I think I would be looking at, you know, probably something in the 20 to 30% range um, inside of, you know, a combination of Casasa cash and, and saver um, in terms of kind of the, the core chunks of deposits and then surround that with kind of a more traditional mix. I mean, it, it is the truth that we that examiners are going to drive a lot of what's going on. And as as long, you know, even though we've been around and and had institutions that are running these products for for 15 years, it's still relatively new in banking and, and examiners are, are still getting, you know, growing more comfortable with with how these products behave in various market scenarios and what the impacts are and the risks of them are. And so, you know, I think, you know, having a sizable chunk of your deposit base in there, but not so concentrated um, is the right strategy and, and then surrounding it with those traditional products. But 
Um, but recognizing that at 20 to 30%, that gives you the ability to, to leverage up or leverage down, depending on what your, your, your growth needs might be at that point in time without putting, again, way too much risk into one category of deposits or another. Cool. That made, I mean, that seems to make sense to me. Um, if you're up for it, Greg, I'd love to maybe talk a little bit about how a portfolio like that would perform if the Fed drops rates. You know, because that's now something that like we've been thinking, oh, they're raising or they're rising. No, they're steady. Oh, they might drop. Well, what does that mean if somebody comes in and prices at 4%? Yeah. So the, again, kind of the advantage here is that we've, We've already gone through this from a, you know, the last the last falling rate environment, um, and so we've actually got a tremendous amount of data of what happened uh, for uh, what happened to the institutions that were live with these types of programs, um, and and what they were able to do and how they were able to kind of navigate those waters. Um, and so the first thing to kind of keep in mind, so you know, let's say today we're we're looking at you know, market rates in the two and a quarter to two and a half, and let you know, let's call it two and a half, um, just for the sake of easy math. And and we'll use the example of that institution I talked about before that was priced at four. So you're 150 basis points over market. You are growing at a tremendous clip um, because you've got you've got such a pricing disparity. But again, from a cost of funds standpoint, cost of funds is about two point four. Cost of deposits, that kind of all-in net number is closer to the to the one one and a quarter kind of range, um, and so you've got you've got a lot of of margin that you can play with, and so what that means is you know as as rates start to fall, so let's say market went from two and a half to two, so we lost fifty basis points. Well, from a cost of funds standpoint, we're still high, right? Or or we now are high. We're not in parity with the market. We're at two point four. But our all-in net cost is still well below market um, because of all that non-interest income that's coming in, um, because it is that checking account type of behavior. We're still, you know, eighty basis points um, below market. So what that allows an institution to do is actually, while everybody else is having to actively reprice, right? So, you know, the folks that were advertising those two and a half percent CDs are now having to kind of shut those down and. Um, you know, grandfather those off the people that got them great, but now we're advertising too. they're having to make all those changes. You have the ability if you're at 4% to sit there and say, well, hey, I'm going to I'm going to hang out here for a minute. Yeah, I lost a little bit of margin, but I'm still well below other uh, other deposit products prices in terms of my all in cost. So I'm just going to hang out for a minute. And this is exactly what we saw all of our clients doing in the last falling rate environment, while the rest of their competitors we're scrambling and trying to kind of guess where the market was going to land. Um, they were just staying steady. And of course, from a consumer deposit pricing standpoint, people like steady, like, like steady deposit rates. Um, and so we actually saw these institutions continuing to grow um, because they were hanging, hanging out, staying steady. Um, we actually had an institution, uh, believe it or not, Louisiana, that through the entire and through the entirety of uh, the the last kind of recession period when when Fed funds was zero to twenty five basis points, they were able to keep their uh, Casasa cash rate of four percent the entire time, and so they grew tremendously over that period of time. 
um, because they were able to just kind of hang out, stay steady, know, know where things were. But but let's say things continue to fall from there, right? So now, now the market's no longer at two. Let's say it falls all the way to the bottom at zero to 25 basis points like it was uh, just a few years ago. Well, in those types of scenarios where, again, everybody else is scrambling, that institution's able to, because it's disclosed as a variable rate account, at any point in time at their discretion, adjust the pricing on that deposit base from, in this case, 4% down to maybe three or even two and a half, which would still be an incredibly competitive rate, right? Would be on par with where the market was when they were priced at four. Now they're priced still 200 basis points above market. Their cost of funds is going to be you know, in the neighborhood of 80 to maybe 100 basis points at that point. And then their all-in cost, that cost of deposits, would be borderline zero, if not negative, meaning that they were actually generating marginal revenue off of these deposits because of all of that non-interest income coming in. Um, and they're sitting there, again, kind of reaping the benefits of that one-time price change while everybody else is continuously trying to adjust and adjust and adjust causing the whole you know, causing their depositors to wonder where is everything going to land and so it, it again kind of the strategy of this and why i think you know even even in the face of a you know suggested recession or or looming uh, dip from the fed this is still a really great deposit strategy because it's got that level of flexibility and you can leverage that appropriately to even continue to grow account holder relationships even if rates are falling. This probably isn't going to make it into the, the final version of the, of the podcast, but I'm curious, like, since we have seen, uh, we, we've gone through a recession and we've seen how accounts perform, we've seen how people behave. Is there a big shift in how consumers behave, how they bank during an economic downturn? No. Interesting. It's really, it, was, it was really interesting. Um, so the the biggest things that we saw um, in in the in the recession is we did we did start to see a flight to safety, and so you would see what you did see was uh, folks who had large deposits, those deposit bases got larger hmm. uh, because you know presumably as confidence in you know the stock market and other kind of more volatile investments started to to taper off um you had that kind of flight to safety of deposits coming out of those investment uh types of or those investment vehicles and landing in more stable um products like you know uh, like a fixed rate checking account or, or the savings account so we did see that um happen um but the average consumer nothing really changed Right, you still saw kind of consistent deposits. You saw um, consistent amount of, of of debit card transactions. You know there was there was no you know, no significant reductions in the number of of debit card transactions or paper checks being written or anything along those lines. People people continued to operate um, in general about the same. The the only real uh, the only real difference was large people who were large depositors in those institutions that deposit base got larger because they were pulling it out of other investment vehicles. Gotcha. That makes sense. So, you know, not being a banker, <laughs> I mean, you know, I've learned a lot about it, but not being a banker, it sounds like that even though something like reward checking looks like it's uh, kind of high risk, I mean, it sounds like it's 
it's not even just a cushion against volatile rates. It actually gives you a significant advantage in a volatile rate environment. Like you can, as you were saying, people could just hang out when rates were falling and watch their competitors scramble to the bottom. That sounds like a pretty advantaged position to be in. I mean, is that? Yeah. And most people aren't thinking about checking accounts like that in terms of how they bring them in, right? Yeah, it, it really is. And that's, you know, the, it's it's one of those things that I think because it is, again, if you think about our industry, the concept of reward checking can, in comparison to everything else is still relatively new, right? There's not really another innovative type of deposit product that has come up in the industry as a whole, um, at least none that I've seen. And so, you know, unless you've got a lot of data, which to the best of my knowledge, we are really the only folks that have the level of data um, about you know, the, the historical performance of these types of accounts. Unless that is something that's readily available to you, you're gonna you're not gonna understand it. And you know, one of the questions I get asked a lot is, you know, why why do I think or or why haven't the mega banks, you know, knocked knocked the program off? Why, you know, why haven't you seen Bank of America or Wells or any of those guys launch a reward checking program? And and the yeah, you know, the reality is those guys are sitting on, you know, potentially, and I, you know, I've never looked at I've never dug into what their deposit mix looks like, but you can. You know, let's let's just say it's you know they've got ten billion dollars in free checking. So you've got ten billion dollars of deposits that you're not going to pay anything on, right? There's no interest associated with free checking. And the idea that you could that you would launch a checking account next to that that was also free, but then paid three or four percent. I mean. If you didn't understand the dynamics of what would happen from a cannibalization standpoint, it wouldn't take anybody any amount of time to look at that and say that's just too much risk, right? They don't. I, I can't. You know, if if half of that deposit, you know, half of that free checking portfolio moved over to that three percent checking account, we be they'd be toast from a margin standpoint. Well, we know because we launched you know hundreds, if not well over a thousand institution, thousand institutions over the last fifteen years. We know that that cannibalization concern is actually not really a, a, a big concern because we've seen all of the data. But if you don't know that, you know, you're not going to make the right decisions. And it's, it's the same thing across all of, the, uh, all of the dynamics of the account. If you don't really understand the data and understand how it performs and understand how it behaves and what consumers do and what consumers don't do, that you would, you know, you as a banker would automatically assume that they do. Then you, you you're going to make the wrong decisions, but yeah, I mean it is to me it is, and admittedly I'm biased, but everything I have ever seen, all of the performance metrics that I've ever seen, all of the data that I've gotten from every one of our institutions, this is hands down the most powerful deposit product for any type of rate environment because it gives you all of the flexibility, it gives you the ability to be as competitive as you want to grow as much or as little deposits as you want to focus on just getting new new account holders in without necessarily needing to grow deposits if your loan portfolio is not growing or aggressively growing deposits um, if you need to feed, if you need to feed that portfolio so it's just the the ability to customize it to 
your market conditions to your overall goals as an institution, there's nothing like it. Gotcha. Well, cool. Um, I mean, I, this is, uh, I think there's a lot of value here for people just even from hearing about how, you know, the data, data sources that they've been looking at probably aren't as trustworthy or as comprehensive as they may have once thought. And uh, some good tips for how people can rethink uh, their deposit portfolio and, and try to kind of embrace a new strategy. Uh, even if, you know, even if they don't end up with Casas or something like that, it sounds like it's going to be pretty important for them to adopt a different perspective about deposits, um, you know, given where the market is and what the competition is doing. Andrew, you have any uh, closing comments? No, just thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate your thoughts and uh, indulging all my questions. Yeah, you bet. I really enjoyed it, guys. Thanks for the time. Okay. That concludes part two of our conversation with Casasa's Chief Client Officer, Greg Wimpy. I hope you enjoy diving into this topic with us. And thanks again for listening to Thinking Outside the Vault, a podcast produced by Casasa. If you have questions, comments, or would like to suggest a topic for a future episode, feel free to email us at social at casasa.com. 